1: When you're new, you know, you have that window of opportunity where people don't expect you to know anything. So take advantage of that by asking all questions and, and you know, trying to really soak up. No question is a foolish question, and that will help you um, get, your, get you up to speed, get you up the learning curve much more quickly.
2: On any given day in Washington, D.C., policy proposals are created, debated, and decimated by tens of thousands of people and organizations working behind the scenes. Each week, a guest and I will visit one of D.C.'s many watering holes and distill the art of advocacy. We'll pull back the curtain a bit and take a look at how they play their part in this sausage factory we call our federal government. So if you're at all interested in how the sausage is made, pull up a chair, grab a drink, and join us for the next 20 minutes or so. After all... What goes better with sausage than a tall, cold one? Welcome to this episode of 80 Proof Politics. I'm your host, Bill Shute. Today we're uh, broadcasting from Chennai in Arlington, Virginia. It's at 1301 South Joyce. It's in the Pentagon Row Shopping Plaza. Uh, it's a wonderful, authentic Irish pub. It's sort of classic pub fair. They've got half price appetizers during happy hour, half price burgers on Monday, and in the summer they do a concert series which is just fabulous. I highly recommend coming and listen to some great music of all types on their summer evenings. but. It's a great place to come in the winter as well because there's a fire pit outside right next to an ice skating rink. So it's a great place to come have a hot toddy, enjoy the cool winters in Arlington, Virginia. And if you want to host a private event, they've got great capacity to host anything from a group of 25 to a group of 200. So they are built for your entertaining needs. And we're here today. With Mark Bear, founder of Bear Strategic Consulting. So, welcome, Mark, and cheers. Cheers.
1: Thanks, Bill. Thanks for having me here.
2: Well, glad you could be on the show. You know, I was uh, looking at your website where you were talking about Bear Strategic Consulting, and you use a phrase that I have not seen before, and I, I think it's. A, I'm curious if it's a differentiator for you and mm-hmm. what you provide to your clients. You say that. Bear Strategic Consulting is an advocacy and training firm. Explain what you mean by that.
1: I work with primarily scientists and engineers, other technical folks who are trying to clearly explain the value of their work to their most important stakeholders. So that's policymakers, could be investors, the public, other funders, and really translating what can be complex topics into engaging, memorable jargon-free language, um, you know, which really resonates and and is relatable. And so the training is in what I sort of learned on the Hill, 20 plus years, um, how do you take a complicated policy issue, topic, could be a a nuclear reactor that produces tritium, plutonium, and has environmental waste, and describe that in a 30-second soundbite uh, for for CNN um, or to a reporter from the New York Times. You know who's on deadline.
2: Well, I've you got know. to tell you, I spent the last 18 years advocating university science and trying to get the researchers in front of policymakers and program managers, <laughs> and it always started with, "Okay, you need to take it down a level." so that I can understand it and explain it to someone who I probably need to take it another level down. That is exactly. such a critical skill. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, thanks, Bill. And it's you know, and it is a skill, and that's where sort of this starts. It's a skill, which means that it can be learned, and with practice, it can be perfected to a degree. And you, you know, you don't have to be a spokesperson or someone like me who is talking, you know, all the time for 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 a living. Um, you know, you can be um, steeped in technology, or you know, spend a lot of time in the lab. But it starts sort of with the mind mindset that this is something that's important and that I should learn this, and then where can I go to, to learn and get better at it? And so I go around. I, I was actually in New Zealand a couple of weeks ago talking to environmental engineers at a big conference there. I did a keynote. I'm, I'm heading to University of Chicago. I worked with... Um, University uh, University uh, Arizona State a whole range of, of universities plus scientific societies um, who whose members uh, I think what, what's really ha- whose members are interested in getting involved in in policymaking on one level or another so I think really after th- this sort of wave was occurring but I think after the last presidential election in 2016 uh-huh. you know a lot of scientists started to realize that they were in the crosshairs and and their views based on evidence and fact, were being dismissed or at least downgraded, sometimes denigrated, and they weren't even in the room anymore. Um, and that's scary, I think, for all of us to think that, that major decisions about you know, public investments are, are being made uh, with with um, not data-based, not, not evidence-based.
2: Well, I remember feeling the same way when sequestration kicked in. You know, there were a lot of great scientific programs that all of a sudden were on the chopping block.
1: Yeah. For sure, right. And so scientists historically have shied away from getting involved mm-hmm. for a variety of reasons, and mm-hmm. there are a lot of different reasons. And I think as a political hack that I am, I think it is fascinating to look at the power relationships and, and the rationale and always ask, why? Why is that? And so, but that's that's a whole other a whole other topic. Um, but nonetheless, uh, I really enjoy, through my online course, through workshops that I do, through keynote speaks, uh, speeches that I give, one-on-one executive coaching that I I do because this is really important stuff um, and as you know you were right in the middle of it and I'm, I'm kind of in, in that translator role a lot of times and um, it would have, your job would have been a lot easier if, if maybe that researcher that tenured professor um, had had some training <laughs> before yeah. she or he came to Washington to talk to you and then go up yeah. to the hill or something like Boy, that. well
2: that is so true we used to always had do a briefing session in in the front side and then a debrief on the back side, and kind of dissect how it went to help them professionally so they can get better at it next time. And, and it seems like you have a very dedicated approach to that. I mean, you have something called the Savvy Scientist Training Series. Right. Tell me about that.
1: <laughs> right, right. Well, you know, when I say savvy, I mean sort of uh, aware of how the world really operates beyond your circle. Uh, be, be aware of how the environment that you are going to be thrust into or that you're going to, to enter into the policymaking environment... Um, has its own culture and, and kind of set of, you know, own language, own culture, own way of doing things. And, and, you know, it starts again with that recognition. And then the savvy scientist says, okay, it's different from what I'm used to. Um, I want to learn about this, this strange world uh, inside or the Beltway or it could be at your local council meeting, your county board meeting, or, you know, all that sort of, you know, kind of, I'll put that in one category. It doesn't have to be in Washington, D.C. Yeah, it's a skill set. It's a skill set, right, sure. And so um, once you sort of have that recognition and you decide I'm going to start to work on it, um, then, you know, you you get savvier. And I guess the the bottom line I would sort of put on this as far as how I consider it, what I mean by savvy scientists is, you know, understanding there's always a formal, there's often a formal process to getting something done. We I mean, understand that if you're going to, you know, submit a grant and, you know, they have to follow these steps and, and there are these deadlines and, and so forth, and you need to know what those are and you need to follow those. But when humans are involved, there's always an informal process. Yeah. And oftentimes that is relationship driven um, and it could, you know, it could be more intangible um, you know who, who who got a grant funded by that agency before what were they looking for you right. know kind of trying to figure out that and that's really for me the essence of of savvy is understanding that just checking boxes you know that are required um, that's necessary but it's not sufficient
2: yeah so it's not only learning the skills to be uh, engaged in the process at an appropriate and effective level, but now you're you're throwing in some strategy as well. Exactly. There. Yeah. And strategic communications is part of what I know your, your firm does. I was listening to well, and you you have a highly popular podcast as well. Oh, when nice. science speaks, that I think is I highly recommend to this audience as well because it touches on similar topics, but focused on a very important niche that you've been talking about here, and that's explaining science to people who make the decisions on funding science, right? I was listening to one of the episodes recently, I think it was your episode with um, Karen Richards, and she, I think, Raised an issue that you've just started talking about as well right here, and that's the that communications requires a connection mm-hmm, as well Explain what would you two were talking about in that regard?
1: Sure Well, I like to say you need to connect before you communicate and then the question is well What does connect really mean and it, it boils down to finding common ground? similarities Um, finding shared values, shared experiences, you know, humans. And there's a great book that I'm actually reading right now, which I would highly recommend. It's called uh, Social. And it's written by Matthew Lieberman. And he talks about how humans, since the very beginning, you know, we're wired to seek connection. And at one point, that was a matter of survival. (laughs) You know, you didn't want to be ostracized. You didn't want to be sent out into exile, you know, from the tribe from the community and out into the wilderness because you weren't going to last very long on your own. So, you know, ev- you know, through evolution, you know, we natural selection, I suppose, we, we value connections and we seek connections all the time. So when you're engaging on an issue, whether it's funding for NIH, for example, um, you know, you also have to think about, well, you know, the audience or the listener or the decision maker, you know, what sort of connection do I have or does our organization have to that individual, to the decider? And, um, you know, like I said, it, it, a lot of it has to do with similar similarity um and and uh people tend to and there's research by robert cialdini who's one of my favorites uh, on persuasion um and uh, research about you know people tend to like those who are similar to themselves um and i i call it reflection affection connection uh, like so it. you know they see themselves in you or your organization um they like what they see not a surprise because they're sort of looking back at themselves or relating them relating To themselves, and then that is a firm basis of connection, uh, which helps you then decide how am I going to craft my message when I talk to this person. And I guess the last thing I would say um, on on this um, on it is that it has to be authentic. It has to be honest, and there has to be a genuineness to it. Could not Uh, agree more. um, And what I tell you know groups or teams is if you yourself uh, aren't able to do that, say with your Decider with integrity or with honesty, with authenticity, then you need to find someone else who can, and that could be someone else on your team. It could be a consultant that you bring on. You know, you but but you really need to think about that, and then ask yourself, am I the right person to engage, um, given this need for connection?
2: So, how did you get started on this? I mean, how did you discover this? this niche and your ability to deal with it? Well
1: it's a great question and it's it was like a lot of things, it, it, I didn't start out knowing this is what I wanted to do. Um, I, I guess if I take a step back and look at it really from the origins it starts with a real respect uh, admiration for scientists and and triple a s fellows you know the american association of advancement of science it's the oldest scientific oldest and largest international scientific organization i've worked work with them i trained all their science uh, fellows actually last year uh, who are in congress and executive branch last year and um I, I had worked with these scientists in the it was the gamut we had we had a veterinarian we had a psychologist we had physicists we had all and you know they were here for a year in our office and they they were going to immerse themselves in policy and and learn try to learn some lessons on how to how to move issues forward um and so after i i left cars i retired um i was trying to figure out what i wanted to do and Um, it was right around the election time that people, in 16, after the election, people started contacting me and saying, well, what should we do? We need to, you know, we're, we're... we're outraged. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and so um, I wrote a blog post called, um, you know, how to deal with PTSD, which was President Trump's stress disorder. <laughs> and uh, it, it really boiled down to advocacy. Like, if you want to make a change, you've got to make your voice heard. And here are some ways that you might want to consider doing that. Um, March for Science then, of course, ramped up. Um, they had over a million people worldwide. They had about 100,000 marching in D.C. Yep. And that was really the beginning of, um, of me sort of thinking about working with scientists because scientists were going to realize that they needed to be engaged now in the policymaking process. But it was clear, at least it was clear to me, that they had absolutely no idea what they were doing, uh, just like I would have absolutely no idea what I was doing in a chemistry lab. Yeah, and then um, just the, the last kind of piece of it was, um, I just got interested. I think you, you
2: call yourself a persuasion nerd. Yeah, a persuasion nerd.
1: Absolutely. <laughs> um, self-admitted uh, and proud of it because I'm just fascinated by what moves people to, to action to do things, to to take up particular positions and advocate for them. And so when this term alternative facts came out um, in January, right after the inauguration in 2017, I started looking at it um, just, you know, just kind of interested in, you know, how is this happening? And then as that became kind of part of the sort of strategy um, from, from a lot of high levels, I started thinking, well, how do you combat it? How do you push back? A lot of people were talking at the time about what it was. Well, I wasn't really—I mean, I think we all kind of agree to were lies. So you, you can put them in. You can put, it, put any kind of qualifier on that you want. But, but I wasn't really interested in that as much as how do you push back? And so I wrote some pieces. I was fortunate enough. Um, the New Yorker published a, a letter that I wrote, and mm-hmm. I was, and then I, I spoke at AAAS at the uh, conference, the annual conference, which happened to be in Austin, Texas, and I did a talk on you know, alternative facts and fake news, how to stand up for science when data aren't enough. And um, it was packed. I I was really surprised, actually, that there were that. And that's when I realized that I should have, kind of something that I should have known all along, which is that, Facts and evidence are the oxygen that scientists, you know, have. And without that, um, they really, their whole enterprise just kind of collapses if if you take that away and say it's no longer important. And that's when I realized that I should be helping scientists get their voice heard. Um, because we both kind of share, and I felt this affinity uh, with scientists, even though I'm clearly not one myself, but kind of like a got into politics to try to make a difference, solve problems. And I really felt that scientists got into science for the same reason.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory— Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
2: Yeah, you mentioned that you got into politics. You had a very lengthy career in Capitol Hill. Tell us a bit about what you did over those years.
1: Well, I just feel so fortunate to have had um, the experience that I did working for an amazing boss, Ed Markey, who... Uh, is now Senator ed markey. He was representative Ed Markey and Senator Ed Markey when I worked for him. Um but I you know I took uh I, I you know I started at the bottom. I, I was an intern. I was an unpaid intern. Um, During college? Uh after graduation from college, oh, wow. which was adding a little salt to the wound, uh, <laughs> the wound as my friends were all in med school and and various law schools and all this stuff and I'm working for free answering phones. So. Uh, but it's a right it was a right thing to do and you know i was fortunate actually because my my sister was living in silver spring so i could sleep on the couch there and and i didn't have to worry about expenses as much as i would have otherwise um, and then I got hired. Uh, it was eight months. It was probably the eight longest eight months of my life. Uh, but I did get hired uh, to, again, just I went up from staff, staff assistant uh, to legislative correspondent. And, um, and then, uh, you know, it wasn't too, too much longer uh, that I, I moved into a, a, a you know, strictly legislative role. And, and um, one of my jobs actually was and it kind of relates, I think, maybe to what we're talking about here as far as distilling a topic, boiling down a topic uh, to its essence very quickly, okay. um, is I was a floor monitor. So in the marquee office, that meant that whenever the House was in session, you were watching the proceedings, and you had to know, uh, you had to make vote recommendations to the bosses as, as he was out and at hearings and he was in meetings, and, you know, uh, you had to be able to explain what the issue was in very short order.
2: Yeah, was that limited to certain issues you were responsible for, or was this a jack-of-all-trades? It was experience? all issues,
1: every okay. issue. If if the if it was talked about on the House floor, you needed to know about it. What it a sad. great education. Yeah, it was. And so, you know, just imagine, you know, running running with a boss, you know, down the, the corridors of the Rayburn building and the basement of the Rayburn building to the subway and explaining what this vote is and who's for it and who's against it and why is that. And, you know, so it kind of got me thinking in different dimensions, which is something that I teach, and it kind of goes to, as I mentioned earlier, Bill, is that, you know, we... We've got your facts, uh, necessary but not sufficient. So what are the other dimensions that you need to think in? And and over the years, I kind of developed a model, which is really the savvy scientist system that I teach, in in looking at any policy issue and, and really trying to zoom in on the most important stuff very quickly.
2: Yeah, that is a real talent. And it's hard to get that from a textbook. I mean, you have to be on the ground. Very practical learning experience to get that right okay, so right. after what 20 years capital so it, was,
1: it was 20 years and two tours i like to say because oh. i left i left after about four years um just because i felt i should go to grad school maybe that was uh, uh you know you can argue one way or another whether it was worth it. I felt that it was. Um, I left. Um, I went to the Kennedy School of Government, which actually brought me back to Massachusetts, um, which I, I loved. And my plan was to stay up in Massachusetts and live in the south end of Boston. And, you know, I had my whole, you know, I was going to live in one of those brownstones. I had the whole thing picked out, except that there wasn't really that uh, much opportunity for me in, in, in Boston, which is, I love Boston. It's also, you know, it's more of a, a focused city. I wasn't going to work in the medical Field. I wasn't going to law, you know, I obviously didn't go to law school, I wasn't in finance, um, and so, and I wasn't really that interested in education writ large, yeah. education policy, I should yeah. say. And so um, I ended up coming back to D.C. and working for PricewaterhouseCoopers, which I liked a lot, doing management consulting. Okay. I went to a startup, uh, which, which basically allowed me to live the cliché with the foosball and the couch and the free food. A uh, high-tech startup. Yeah, uh-huh. and, and uh, they had real clients. I could also walk to work still from my office. And, um, and then the call came um, from the Markey office um, after 9-11, uh, saying, look, you know, there's a lot going on here, obviously, and um, Senator Markey, who was Congressman at that point, had been appointed to the uh, House Select Committee on Homeland Security. It wasn't Branded, a permanent committee. Yeah, yeah and, and there's a whole talk about a good political case study on how yeah. that was stood up. Because uh, the chairman. And chairwomen don't like when their jurisdiction gets gets maybe whittled here or there to make room for another committee. Yeah, so
2: what you're referring to is when the Homeland Security Department was set up and then the committee was established as well, there was just a merger of jurisdictions and responsibilities from other existing areas.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And, um, you, know, the committee, you know, the committee was set up uh, to be, as you point out, to be oversight of this huge new department. Uh, I think March 1- Two thousand and three was when the Homeland Security Department was actually opened its doors. Although the Department, although the Transportation Security Administration preceded that, just right. a little bit. So, in any case, I spent the next five years working on Homeland Security issues. Uh, primarily, aviation security was my my number one uh, responsibility. We we worked on a on a, a major. Um, uh... change in the law uh, related to air cargo security um, billions of pounds of air cargo carried in the belly of passenger aircraft every year and none of it was being screened for explosives oh, <laughs> it was the ultimate out of sight out of mind um, after all of these billions of dollars being spent on passenger security and check bag security carry-on bag security not, uh... the the process for check back for sorry air cargo security very, very limited. And actually, um, we, we waged a five-year campaign to require the same level of screening for cargo as passengers' check bags. I'm
2: sure glad I didn't know that at the time.
1: <laughs> yeah, it was a huge loophole. Um, and uh, it took us five years uh, because the administration was against it, the, the Bush administration was against it, the airlines were against it, um, you know, the freight forwarders were against it. We were going we to destroy the international global economy as we know it if we made this change. (laughs) We heard every kind of argument under the sun, but after a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, uh, President um, Bush signed it, and uh, it is now the law. Thanks to a lot of hard work from the flight attendants, from the airline pilots, uh, from the families of 9-11, from people who lost uh, family members as a result of of the attacks uh, it was uh, it was an amazing thing and we, we got it done
2: true coalition building
1: yep for sure yep
2: well, you mentioned that you're in part of the interim not only uh, between Marky jobs you went to grad school but then you worked at Price Waterhouse at PwC. Mm-hmm. What did you do there?
1: Sure. That was a great education in and of itself to, to be at Price Waterhouse Coopers um, because at that point in time, so I was in D.C., as I mentioned. At that point in time, it was a new mayor, Tony Williams, and he had been elected on a mandate to really get the trains running on time, so to speak, in D.C. You know, there's so much frustration. Um, and so if you think about all city departments and agencies and getting them to run better, you um, you might think that maybe the number one place, again, this was back back in back in 2000, I have to say. Um, back in the day. Yeah, back, way back in the day. Uh, the number one place that everybody has to go um, and was a complete disaster, not just in D.C., all across the country, was the Department of Motor Vehicles. Oh. And people would take off a day from work and they would, you know, bring a lunch, you know, dinner, <laughs> snack, midnight snack with them. I mean, it was like a, a quite an endeavor. And so I was... Uh, fortunate, actually, and I'll explain why I felt like I was lucky uh, to be on a on a relatively small team that went in there. And you know, their initial hope, as far as the the administrators, they're bringing a new director for the Department of Motor Vehicles. Um, Cheryl Hobbs Newman was her name. She was great, a lot of energy, smart, smart woman. Um, but they basically just wanted to get off the front page. Oh yeah. <laughs> and. I can just say, you know, they weren't on the front page for a flattering reason. I mean, there were, there were employees who had been selling driver's license, which is a federal offense. Uh, so there were, there were FBI stings. They had, you know, all sorts of, of stuff like that. And, of course, the technology, everything was broken. The process, the technology, the physical buildings were crumbling. And so we went in there, and um, thanks to, you know, the trust that we built up, with the employees many of whom had been there a long time and were frankly fed up with the way things were operating Um, and we just took the whole place apart and then working with you know, side by side with the employees, we put it all back together. I mean, you know, not exactly, of course, we updated it, we changed the policies, we streamlined things, the employees were were great providing their insights into what would be better.
2: because I'm sure there did. was some reluctance on the front end of that from the employee standpoint.
1: Absolutely, I mean, I think initially there was skepticism because there had been other consultants in there and there was never any change. Um, and then it became, you know, these people, you know, so these people are just gonna come in, they're gonna write a report telling us how terrible we are, mm-hmm. and they're gonna leave. And, you know, but we, you know, we had various kind of ways of demonstrating that that wasn't going to happen, that we, you know, we weren't, that wasn't going to be a successful project from our standpoint. Um, And so, you know, it was just, it was just wonderful to, 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 um, uh, I would I would facilitate a lot of these stakeholder meetings and, and really talk to employees about what their hopes were for the organization and and their ideas about how we could make it better. And it was just funny because oh, and I, I should just say I also came up with a new I came up with a new tagline for them that they still use. <laughs> I checked the website every once in a while. Uh, when somebody says something about the DMV, I'm like, I wonder if they still use. So if you think about back in 2000 2001 when websites were actually um, moving from just being brochures to portals to do transactions. And so one of the major themes was, look, if there are huge long lines, um, some of those people are waiting in line for a license renewal or something of that nature that now we have the functionality to do online. If we can keep those people, that cohort out of the building, then guess what? They're not waiting in line. Um, and then we had a way also of automating so that there were even specific lines within the, uh, the queue that were just for these like quick transactions. Yeah, right. So if we couldn't keep them out of the building, if they, if they didn't have access or they didn't know about it. So I said, look, DMV, DC DMV, skip the trip. Uh, uh, and, and it was not that that was such a genius uh, w- uh, turn of phrase, um, but it was really like something that people could remember, right? Which, yeah. is, which is always part of, of what you're aiming for and uh, we wanted you to skip the trip. I mean, you know, here are all the things you can do from the comfort of your home or before laptops were used that much, but from anywhere, you know, you can get a connection and a secure connection. And so um, it was just great um, working with that that team there. And literally last week on Facebook, um, a friend said something about, you know, I was just over at the DC DMV inspection station on Half Street. And I remember the opening of that because I, I sort of did communication and press for the very opening of that, and we had a Fox reporter who was there. Um, but but he said, you know, I was just over at the inspection station, and it was such a pleasure. Oh <laughs> it was so gosh. easy. It was no, it, was, it was great, and then I, so I had to comment, you know, and just say, oh, I'll tell you a little little story about about that. You know, uh, Mr. Fred Loney was the head of it, and he he was an Air Force guy, and he was so committed and. Just a great example of what a public servant should aspire to. Yeah, really, really amazing. So dedicated. And there were a lot of those people within the organization, which is why the program ultimately was a success.
2: Yeah. And so, how long was that project?
1: You know, it was less than a year. Um, it was like an eight-month project, and that included, you know, putting in this what's called the Cumatic at the time. It's 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 a brand name, I think. Uh, and And that kind of technology spread all across the country, but it's kind of a way of, it's a a line line ordering system, but it's also a way of directing certain more complicated transactions to certain um, employees or, or lines and then the easier ones to other ones. So you try to really be as efficient as possible you know based on what you first arrived like when you first arrive at the DMV it's like this in Virginia too which is where where I'm living now you know you basically just want to tell them what you need done and then they can um, give the number that they give you kind of corresponds to the complexity of your request your transaction. So that explains
2: two things about my DMV experiences the, why they ask your need mm-hmm. when you have to check the box, fill in the form when you mm-hmm. first show up, and why the numbering is so apparently random. <laughs> exactly.
1: <laughs> it's not a bakery.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I was like, wait a minute! I'm 73, and they <laughs> just called 112. Yeah. What did I fall asleep? Yeah,
1: three, and then they're all over yeah. the place. So, but now you'll hear that and you'll be like, "Very
2: good, the system's working." Now we know Qmatic. Very <laughs> About Q-matic. How long were you with PwC?
1: For about two years, okay. uh, and then the project manager on my PwC team recruited me to go to this internet company uh because he was leaving to go and uh, i went with him for about a year and a half or so and then got the got the 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 bat sign from the markey operation and i went back for about 15 years um back to to work for the for for ed markey and that of course included uh two senate campaigns because when president obama appointed john kerry secretary of state opening up that Senate seat, Ed ran for it and because you had to run for the unexpired term, sure. which was eighteen and months in the special. Yeah. And then you won that, which he did. Uh, then you had to run again for the full term a year and a half later and I was there for, for both of those.
2: So Mark you you leave Markey's office the second time. Do you start the firm right after that? Did you did you come up with your own firm right after leaving Markey's No office?
1: actually I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. Uh, That's not uncommon. After that point, you know, I mean, I uh, again felt really lucky to have had the experience, and I, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do, how I wanted to make an impact later, and and then gradually through through some you know string of events that I couldn't necessarily foresee, I started deciding that it was really um, time to help scientists, engineers, other technical people. Um, you know, after the election, the presidential in 2016, those folks were really feeling like their expertise didn't matter anymore and that the science and the evidence and the data that was all built in good faith and, and after a lot of experimentation and peer review and all those sorts of things. Well, that just didn't matter if someone saw an article somewhere on the Internet saying the opposite. And that has huge implications, negative implications, I would suggest, for all of us. Uh, We want decisions, big decisions, um, which are usually left up to government to make. We want those decisions to be based on the best available information possible, um, not on self-interest or anecdote. Um, or falsehoods. So I actually started writing about uh, alternative facts. You know, we talked about that. And then I realized that uh, scientists were sort of comrades in arms with me in this whole thing of how to combat alternative facts because facts are, are what they have. You know, that's their that's their currency. So I started working with... Um, AAAS and and the March for Science and then I've worked, uh, well I guess basically what I do is using my online course um, which is called How to Communicate Your Science Effectively to Any Audience. Um, also workshops um, which are usually half day workshops um, one-on-one coaching and then presentations keynotes and so forth and guest lectures you know I, I teach um, the various what I call sort of like you, as you brought up bill like the the um, the training part is really this kind of insider strategy approach that I've just that I developed you know over two, two, you know 20 years or so on really how to present how to distill, how to figure out what's going to really be relatable, how to do that in short order. Um, And, um, you know, I have the good fortune, I'm heading back to my alma mater, Cornell, to do uh, another guest lecture. I've done it for five years now. and, And every time I go up there, more people are interested in science policy, more scientists interested, want to get involved. And I guess the message that I would have to them is we need you. Uh, we need your energy. We need your expertise. We need your voice in uh, in the policymaking arena. So, so I
2: you're teaching to scientists, engineers, sure, not yeah. the policy guys.
1: Yeah, the the well, welcome everybody, of course. But this the class happens to be in the mining the the mining school of biomedical engineering on campus at Cornell, and and Professor Chris Schaefer is the professor of that course, who coincidentally had been a AAAS Science Fellow in the Markey office. Um, back in the day, uh, which of course is how we met. And then Chris went back, he got tenure, uh, tenure track, and uh, created this course, and then asked me if I'd guest lecture, and, and that's been about five years ago and I guess one thing I mentioned about his course which, which kind of ties into what you're saying about poli bill and you've been on the ground and you've been in these rooms where it happens so to speak you know and you know how it really works and that's so important as a practitioner to share that, that information um, go beyond just you know the textbook for, so to speak um, one thing that that Chris does um, as a way to do that is each of the uh, his whole class, the science policy boot camp course, is divided up into small groups and they work together on a real policy problem, so this can range from encouraging composting in Ithaca, New York, which is where Cornell is located, it can be trying to eradicate various uh, diseases in West Africa, increase inoculation rates, uh, prevent racism from infusing AI. Um, I mean, th- these are actual projects <laughs> that, that are making hemp an industrial product for, sure. for purposes of uh, classification in New York State. Um, these are all projects that that the students have worked on so i do the lecture but over the course of a couple of days i also listen to all of these presentations that these uh... student groups oh, okay. make to me and chris and try to um, you know provide feedback uh, sometimes i i know people who are working those issues who could be resources and i connect people in the group to to my contacts and you know sometimes i you know say and i can completely understand this is you know well one group was working on trying to increase inoculation rates uh, across 20 different diseases. And I said, well, maybe start with one, you know, maybe start with one, nail the process, you know, make some mistakes, learn from it. And once you feel like it's really airtight, then a start applying it more broadly so it's not necessarily something that you know you're 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 in a course you've got all these other things going on not necessarily you have never really been involved in policy which is is why you're taking the class might not be it might not occur might not be obvious um, but I'm glad when I can sort of help shape to an extent uh, based on you know just what I've experienced to these project pro, uh, projects to make them hopefully more successful
2: yeah well that's brilliant and and I couldn't agree with the need more because I've seen through my career how many people in the STEM fields just don't appreciate the role that policy plays, and they have to be engaged. You really have to have an understanding at least how the process works, and then to have someone like yourself come in and talk about how to effectively communicate the work you're doing, that's phenomenal. Okay. Well, that's the tip of the hat to you. Thank you
1: very much. I'm I always, I'm always learning. You know, I, I definitely don't have all the answers. It's great to interact with this these folks and, 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 and see and appreciate how they think about problems. Um, you know, and I try almost to teach uh, the course like I want them to interact with policymakers or other stakeholders. So the whole connection part, you know, I do things and at the end of the course I tell them, look, this is why I did this in the beginning, because I was setting up the stage for this other part that we learned, and that's exactly how I want you to approach, you know, your
0: interactions.
2: Yeah, that's great advice. So looking back uh, when you got started in DC on Capitol Hill as an unpaid intern mm-hmm. for eight months, right. sleeping on your sister's right. sofa. <laughs> exactly. At any point along that path, can you think of one particular obstacle or challenge that presented itself to you that created a lasting skill set or a, <laughs> yeah. a memory that you pull on regularly? Yeah.
1: Well, I don't think of this that that regularly, but, um, but I can tell you about one indelible situation that occurred not long after um, I started um, and you know, it was I was I was really new to the legislative route, and um, you know, a lot of times people on the outside don't appreciate that our system itself is set up to be slow. Uh, it's not by set design. up to, yeah, by design exactly. And some people say, you know, they get frustrated quickly and they just sort of give up, or they think that it's something that they're doing that's not correct, or they don't they need more information. I mean, those things might be right, but the go into it with the expectation of this is going to be difficult and it's not necessarily going to happen immediately it's probably not so you know the reason i mentioned that sort of as a scene setter is because you know there are opportunities to input the process make have input input the process various times you can, if you're on the inside, it can be through amendments, say, right? Mm-hmm. And so I was, um, you know, Ed had an amendment that I had worked on. So the substance of it was, uh, I don't even actually remember. It might have been an arms control amendment, but I'm not 100% sure. Um, and, uh, you know, you have to make your case, even as a member of Congress, to the Rules Committee and testify to say why your, your amendment should even be read and considered for a vote. And, um, you know, it's one of the kind of procedural issues that isn't talked about a lot outside. So, so for some reason, I wasn't really clued in to that fact. And I'd worked on the amendment. I'd spent a lot of time. I drafted, got the amendment drafts and everything. And so it wasn't until pretty much right 10 minutes maybe before Ed was going to testify at the Rules Committee that he said, you know, where's my statement? Where, where's my was a statement that I that I'm gonna have and I and so Whoops. because I wasn't even sure that that every member had to testify or whatever, I just I remember vividly sitting outside on the floor of the right outside the rules committee hearing room on the floor in that beautiful ornate you know rules committee right outside the door which is also beautiful and ornate and just I was like look I've gotta do it. I've gotta I've got to zero in, I gotta forget about everything and I just have to, to get this in the most concise most effective way possible that I can do it, longhand. And for some reason, whenever I write longhand, I write in all caps. I, I, I uh-huh. know I do write cursive, but for some reason, whenever I was on the when I was on the hill and I was ever had to to do this, I was always writing in all caps. And so I did that, and um, it was basically as our chief of staff said, around the rim and in (laughs) just barely uh and so um i'll never never forget never forget that i guess the lesson is try to think ahead to the extent that you can and and a lot of times that means asking a lot of questions and you know scientists are good at asking questions uh but don't be intimidated if you're in a new environment you want to ask a lot of questions don't pretend that you know everything exactly Um, and actually i think it was it wasn't kareen's interview on the podcast but it was uh it was um, Dr. Quinta Warren, who is um, uh, invar- is a petroleum engineer she had some great advice. It's in another episode. Essentially what she said is when you're new, you know, you have that window of opportunity where people don't expect you to know anything. So take advantage of that by asking all questions and, and, you know, trying to really soak up. No question is a foolish question and that will help you um, get get you up to speed, get you up the learning curve much more quickly.
2: Yeah, that's something that resonates quite well with me because I used to always tell all of my staff and visiting faculty members, scientists, I said, look, you can't know everything, they don't expect you to know everything, but if you're presented with a question that you're not sure of the answer, it's better to say, you know what, I don't think I know the answer to that right now, but I'll be happy to get back to you and provide the information later because, one, you're being an honest broker, but two, you're creating an instant opportunity to continue exactly. the dialogue and have a second <laughs> right, conversation. Right, right. And that's priceless. Right,
1: so so true. And I love. I hadn't even thought of that second piece. It's like so. Please ask me as many questions as I don't know as possible. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> but that's that's really great. I love. I love that. Um, it is. It is so true.
2: Yeah. Well, Mark, I want to thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule to join us here at Any Approved Politics. I think it's fascinating what you're doing and a very needed niche to advocacy right. here in town. Keep it up. All the best to you on that. And just remember, no matter what you think about the current state of politics in Washington, whether you think the glass is half full or half empty, there's plenty of room to fill your drink. Cheers. Cheers.
1: All right. All right. That was beautiful. I love it.
2: Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present,